this week, asthma and long-acting beta agonists versus beta agonists and steroids? Does it make you stronger? And dexamethamidine for delirium in primary prevention. That confuses me to begin with. Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at Healthy Debate. My name is Kieran Quinn. I am your host and I am a resident in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto. Today I am joined by an age-old friend of mine. His name is Dr. Fraser Pollard. He is a family physician in Trenton, Ontario. For those of you who don't know where Trenton is, uh, but do know where Toronto is, Trenton is about an hour and a half east of the city of Toronto and is situated in a lovely little spot on a river. Dr. Fraser Pollard works at the Quinty West Family Health Team um, and is a hospitalist at the uh, Trenton Memorial Hospital there. He treats a lot of asthma and sees delirium on a daily basis in his work in the hospital. And so I'm so happy to have him on the show today as a brand new guest. Fraser, welcome to the rounds table. Thanks for having me, Kieran. So let's get right into the article that you chose for this week. It's titled Serious Asthma Events with Fluticasone plus Salmeterol versus Fluticasone Alone. It's published in the New England Journal of Medicine, May 12, 2016, and the first author is David Stemple. Fraser, tell us a little bit about first why you chose this article. Well, uh, Kieran, as you mentioned, uh, I'm a family doctor in a small community, uh, see a lot of asthma in the clinic setting, and then a decent amount when I'm in the hospital as well. So it's something I'm seeing and treating every day. Uh, and the majority of what I see since we don't have an ICU uh, in our hospital is the people that have moderate to severe asthma, um, where we're focusing on getting them on uh, beta blockers, short-acting steroids, and then getting them on longer-acting agents. So a lot of what I do is just getting them on these agents, teaching them how to use them right, and answering their basic questions around it. Every once in a while, someone asks about the concerns about the long-acting uh, agents and what has been said in the past about the increased risk, the risk of death. So when this article came up and it seemed like something that could help me communicate with them. People are Googling things on their own and perhaps they've read about some of the safety concern about these long-acting beta agonists. And it sounds like it's a really relevant uh, study for you given the, uh, the breadth of patients that you treat with this issue. What's the bottom line for this article? Uh, I mean, the basic idea is, is that... Um, Patients who are using a combined inhaler, so an ICS LABA, and in this case, Somedrol fluticasone, they don't have a higher risk of serious asthma-related events compared with patients receiving fluticasone alone. Uh, the caveat to that is we have to focus on a specific patient population, which we can define a little bit later. But uh, it's a little bit reassuring because we're already giving these people these inhalers every day, so it's nice to see that that increased risk of serious events um, isn't uh, showing up What's the broader context for why this article is important and what questions does it answer? Well, I mean, I think we sort of take for granted that there's this stepwise approach we take to asthma in terms of introducing different medications. Um, but back in the 90s, there was data showing that the use of LABAs uh, actually led to a greater risk of respiratory death. Um, and uh, in 2008, the FDA uh, went to the four major manufacturers of long-acting beta agonists and asked them to assess the rate of asthma-related death, intubation, hospitalization. And when they went ahead and did those studies, they found that um, there actually was uh, a little bit of a higher rate of these adverse events. Um, and specifically in those studies, they were looking at people using LABAs uh, and uh, 
ICS separately in separate containers and inhalers. Um, so in 2010, they wanted to go forward and say, well, what about when they're combined together in a fixed dose inhaler? So a lot of interesting points you just brought up there. One, that this is a, an FDA mandated study. So this is something that uh, individuals are, are asked to conduct by the Federal Drug Administration of the United States. Um, two, it's a uh, industry-sponsored trial, so we can sort of talk about that a little bit later maybe. And three, you know, in the discussion we can get into this, but uh, it sounds like maybe there's a difference between taking the two puffers separately and then having them together in one, uh, in one inhaler. Um, is that, uh, does that sound right? Yeah, it's exactly right. And and to be honest with you, uh, when I started reading the trial, I had no idea that um, the FDA uh, was looking into this over the past few years and that this was an on- ongoing research, to be honest. I don't know if you were aware, but uh, it was interesting to me that we were giving these out and this is part of our current guidelines and there was this ev- this ongoing uh, investigation yeah, happening I, I, right no, now. Yeah, no, I didn't know that either myself, to be honest. And it, it is always a little bit humbling when uh, we make all of these treatment decisions in the best intentions with the evidence that we have we think we're making the right decisions and then it turns out that uh, you know those big questions in the background and the federal drug administration is actually mandating that we answer those questions all the while we're treating our patients i think this is an age-old pattern we've seen in medicine we learn as time goes on Um, so let's find out what we've learned uh, from this study but first fraser tell us uh, briefly uh, sort of what the methodology is what did they do uh, in order to to answer this question so they designed a, it's a prospective study, multi-centered, randomized, double-rind trial. And their, their question was, in asthma patients, great, and this is a little sort of wordy here, but just bear with me. So in asthma patients greater than 12 years old, using daily medications for asthma control, and who had received systemic glucocorticoids or been hospitalized for an asthma exacerbation the past year, does the regular use of inhaled salmeterol in a fixed-dose combination with fluticasone, so that's Advair, compared with regular use of inhaled fluticasone, increase the risk of asthma-related death, intubation, or hospitalization. They've um, selected a subpopulation of asthmatics. This is not an all-comers asthmatic trial. Yeah, no, it's not It's not everyone. And I, I think when we get into the discussion later, I'll, I'll bring up the specific group they left out. Um, but yeah, it's this is not kids. Um, and this is people who are regularly using inhalers. So you mentioned the primary outcome, uh, which was the first serious asthma-related event, right? Which they defined as death, intubation, or hospitalization. Um, and how long did they follow these patients for? In my opinion, it wasn't that long of a time. They only followed them for 26 weeks. Um, and they were really only looking at the, the occurrence of the, of the first serious adverse event, in your experience in treating asthma, this is a slightly bit of a short-term follow-up. Let's get into that later. In that design um, that we sort of talked about, and those who are interested to read more can, can grab the article and have a look themselves, what were the strengths that you thought to this uh, study design? Overall, there was, there was definitely a few good points, um, and they had sort of, and whether it was for their benefit or not, they had really thought this through and gotten good numbers of patients in multiple centers, in a good patient population. So 12,000 patients, 33 countries, the majority of them coming uh, from North America. They had very detailed uh, inclusion criteria, whether you agree with what those criteria are or not. Um, And uh, because of those criteria, there is a specific uh, cohort of patients that I think you can really apply these, the results to. 
sounds like a pretty high quality study. It takes, you know, it takes that kind of study to get into the New England Journal of Medicine. So, um, uh, and then it sounds like it's, you know, generalizable to a lot of the patients that you see, albeit not necessarily all of them. Um, any weaknesses, any, uh, you know, holes in their design that you, uh, you know, you thought you, you identified? Um, well, I mentioned the short time frame. I, I don't know how long I would have liked to see it go, but I feel like 26 weeks is, you know, half a year. Uh, and some, in some people are having an exacerbation per year. And if I had a patient who was having a decent exacerbation per year, um, I'd be following them closely, wanting to make sure that they're coming in using their inhalers regularly. Um, so that with only 26 weeks, you, you may not even be pe- picking up those exacerbations in those people. So at least a year or two to see if that if that comes up. It, it would bias towards the result that they're looking for, right? Because you're looking for an absence of exacerbations to say that the dual versus single therapy are the same. And if you don't follow people long enough, then uh, then they're not going to have an exacerbation in one arm versus the other if that was going to happen or have some sort of complication of their asthma like death or intubation, right? So so I think it's a valid point that, uh, you know, twenty half a year may be too short a time frame to follow these patients, um, nevertheless. Um, what about uh, the actual diagnosis of asthma? Did, did, were all of these people, you know, did they have 12,000 sets of uh, pulmonary function tests for all of them? No, they didn't. Um, so there was no explanation of how they're actually diagnosed with asthma or if there was evidence that they had it. Um, and I actually didn't find a piece about what they actually used as their criteria for it. I know what they use as their criteria to define what level of asthma they had using a specific scaled score, uh, but not how they actually were diagnosed with it. You know, that brings up concerns about maybe people who don't actually have true asthma are included in this study because they have some sort of history that sounds consistent with asthma. And then surprise, surprise, they don't have an exacerbation because they don't have the disease necessarily. I, I mean, everybody got, remembers going through middle school and there was a time when it was cool to have an inhaler. You know, people had those, like, there's the kids that had their blue inhaler when they went to gym and kids were interested in what it was. And so the, and whether it's driven by the parents or the kids or, or what it is, um, especially when you're including all the 12 year olds, how often do you have somebody come in with a wheeze, they walk away with an inhaler and start telling everybody they have asthma, right? So. Right. And maybe it was a viral infection or something yeah. else. Who knows? Right. Good point. Okay. And then you said you made a point about um, sort of the selection of the patients. Who, who did they leave out? Yeah. Um, sorry. Can I just say one thing about the short time frame? Because we sort of mentioned this is a drug funded study and that would be one of the big sources of bias here. And when I see that short time frame um, and since they des- designed this study, I'm wondering if that short time frame played a role so they could get the stat that they wanted out of this. You know, there's lots of literature around the concern of uh, industry influence in trial design. Um, and, uh, you know, there's there's a variety of different ways that, that things are done to mitigate their influence. But I think, you know, it is one of these things that you just have to keep in the back of your mind uh, that uh, whether there was intent in its design or, you know, data processing, etc., that the industry is sponsored this trial. And then, you know, you should always just sort of have an extra ear for potential sources of bias. And I think that you bring a really good point about the 26-week follow-up that uh, whether it was intentionally designed that way or not, it may be just a cost-saving um, uh, measure, uh, but uh, but certainly something to keep in mind. So you wanted to mention about the uh, exclusion criteria, I think. 
Uh, yeah, well, just 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 sort of like you know, who is this population that they're selecting? Is it? It's obviously not all asthma comers. Who, wh- where do the asthma patients who fit into this trial fit into the spectrum of all asthma patients that you see? This trial really applies to people that are greater than twelve years old. Uh, but I think yeah, eighty percent of the participants were in that eighteen to sixty-four year old age bracket, um, and they're people that are using inhalers every day, um, and. The main key here, though, is that to they excluded people who had um, a history of life-threatening asthma, uh, cigarette smoking for more than 10 years, or unstable asthma. And so it's leaving out the most severe asthmatics and potentially those that are at higher, highest risk for, for death from a respiratory condition, um, which if you're looking for uh, an increased risk of death in one inhaler versus the other, this would be the group where you'd would it potentially see that signal come out and where that black spot, black box warning that's there now would play a big role. Hmm. Very interesting. So two sort of major points about selection bias um, and follow-up time that could influence the results in favor of the findings that they have. We'll keep those in mind. Uh, with that in mind, what were the main findings of the study? So the primary endpoint was a safety endpoint, and it was the first serious asthma-related event, uh, and that was the composite of death, endotracheal intubation, and hospitalization. Uh, And basically what they found was with the combined inhaler, uh, the rate of these uh, adverse events was 0.58%, and in the inhaled corticosteroid, it was 0.56%. So the hazard ratio was 1.03. So this is a minimal difference. They had set uh, uh, their upper boundary of the confidence interval interval at 2.0, and it didn't come anywhere near crossing this. Um, I guess the other way to look at it is there's a 0.02% increased risk of an adverse event if you're on the uh, combined inhaler. Okay, so effectively no difference. The the primary outcome was achieved. There was non-inferior trial. The two... Com, you know, combination drugs versus single drugs are no different. Exactly. Which if, if you, is reassuring if you apply it to the right population. Right. Very reassuring in the right context. Um, any, any other findings uh, that you wanted to highlight or that were interesting? Well, I mean, the mandate from the FDA was to just look at the safety of these. Um, I think uh, GSK or Glasgow SmithKline, they didn't want to just do it at that. They also wanted to look at the efficacy of this combined inhaler versus a steroid on its own. And so their secondary outcome was looking at the occurrence of severe asthma exacerbations. So not the adverse events we were talking about, but they were looking at uh, asthma that deteriorated to the point of needing a systemic glucocorticoid uh, for three days or being in the hospital or emergency department and requiring glucocorticoids. Um, and what they found was uh, there's a 21% reduction so 8% versus 10% in the amount of these severe exacerbations if you're on a combined inhaler versus being on the steroid alone. Okay, so an absolute risk reduction of 2% in exacer- severe ex- exacerbations when you're on the combined therapy? That's what came out of this one, yeah. So a small but not insignificant um, reduction in severe asthma exacerbations. And I mean, I don't know. i got to say I think that's kind of fair. Like this trial is going to cost GSK hundreds of millions of dollars to, to conduct. Um, and it wasn't a trial, that I guess, that they signed up for because the FDA is mandating it. Uh, I, I think it's kind of fair that if they can show something else in a fair way, you know, that like the more power to them. Do you agree? 
Uh, I, I totally agree, to be honest with you. And actually, uh, whether or not they benefit from it, I benefit from it, seeing that there is a bit of uh, a benefit from being on these. I mean, if there was, if both of these uh, endpoints, the, the safety endpoint and the efficacy endpoint came out uh, as no different, then you're looking at, then you have to get into whether or not it's worth the cost to the patient of being on these, being on, is it more difficult to be on a combined inhaler versus just a single inhaler? So knowing that there is some benefit, and it fits with the treatment we're doing is nice. Yeah. Okay, I agree. Um, so who does this study apply to? What is the prototypical patient, you know, that that this study, you walk into your office, it says this study is that person. Who is that person in this study? Uh, so for me, that would be my, let's say, 21-year-old uh, uh, coming back from university uh, for the summer, comes in to get a renewal of their inhalers. They tell me that they had a bit of an exacerbation over the winter when they had a cold, um, and they're continuing to take their, in this case, it would be Advair uh, twice a day, and they use Ventolin uh, maybe once or twice a week. So that would be a perfect patient for me, and I guess that could apply anybody in that category from 18 to 65, and seeing them and feeling confident to renew those uh, medications with that black box warning uh, being lifted. Yeah, I guess sort of from a both safety and, as you mentioned, potentially efficacy standpoint, um, you can reassure their fears they may have read about, plus the fears that you have potentially, um, and then even sometimes encourage them to take the dual uh, combination therapy with a potential efficacy for doing so. Exactly. So does this change your practice overall then? Is this is this something you've been doing already and you feel reassured, or this is something that's going to change what you're doing on a daily basis now? I think it just reassures me, really. I follow the lung association guidelines pretty closely a lot of my teaching i do around exacerbations and how to manage them is all based on that they have good resources that i use so it's nice that this is lining up with that okay excellent um so just for uh, anyone just coming in or has fallen asleep and is now waking up what are the main learning points that you would take away from this article i think the biggest thing uh for me is that the concerns uh, that patients may bring up or that were in the past about using a long-acting beta agonist on its own. Uh, nothing has changed. There's still concerns about adverse events with that. But when combined with an inhaled corticosteroid, uh, it seems to be as safe as using steroids on, on their own. Um, that's the big one. And I think it's important to keep in the back of your mind too that there seems to be a bit of a benefit from using this combination um, and to use the the current uh, stepwise guidelines that we use to to treat asthma. Interesting. Thank you, Fraser, for uh, for bringing this article up. It's been a very uh, informative and fun talk. Uh, let's move on to the article I chose for this. The title is uh, a mouthful. I can never pronounce this drug. Dexmedetomidine. Uh, or Prasidex is the brand name, for prevention of delirium in elderly patients after non-cardiac surgery, a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial. There's the mouthful in more than one way. Uh, this uh, article was published in The Lancet uh, online, August 16th, 2016. Let's talk about this article uh, and why I chose it. Uh, so as a general internal medicine resident, uh, I see a lot of delirium, and I think anybody who works in the hospital and in the outpatient setting you know, has to deal with delirium. Um, but for me, it's it's so common in my clinical practice. Uh, and usually the phone calls come in the middle of the night when you're on call. Um, and it's really just distressing for everybody involved. Um, it distresses me to know that I have to deal with a very complicated problem. And it also reflects a very sick individual 
Um, and as a consequence of that, you know, families are obviously very distressed by it all. We have treatment strategies for it, but really I'd like to be able to prevent it. And I just don't know of any way yet and how to do that. Okay, yeah, you're right, Kieran. I mean, the the title drug of this article is just about impossible to pronounce. Um, and even reading it and getting to the numbers and the way they do this is pretty confusing. So I really applaud you for going into doing this article. But um, in the, what's the bottom line here? The bottom line is that in patients over the age of 65 admitted to the intensive care unit, um, after they've undergone elective non-cardiac surgery, um, if you administer low-dose DEX, will reduce the incidence of delirium in the first seven post-operative days. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of interesting that came up because as uh, someone who's often receiving patients to a complex continuing care floor, post-surgery, post-ICU stays, I actually never see this on on the, the med list coming over. I normally review all those things, so it's a pretty significant thing to read. The rationale for the study from the author's standpoint and in the broader context is that Delirium is common. It's common for me as a general internist. It's common for a lot of others, but it's common in the population as well. In the intensive care units, almost a third of all individuals who come into the intensive care unit will develop delirium. So if you're able to prevent that, preventing delirium would be a major step forward in perioperative care for for individuals who are over 65. Um, But right now, uh, there's been a ton of stuff tried, millions of dollars spent on trying to figure out how to prevent delirium. Nothing has really panned out. Maybe this is a promising step in the right direction. What's the study design? How'd they go about doing this? Yeah, I'll spend just a, a couple minutes on this uh, because it can all make us confused and delirious. They took individuals who are 65 years or older, as I mentioned, and uh, they underwent non-cardiac surgery. They had to have general anesthesia, no, no epidurals or neuraxial anesthesia or anything else. Um, and then they had to be admitted to the intensive care unit uh, after surgery. Um, and that, I think that's an important point to make because not all individuals are always admitted to the ICU. If a patient had a few different significant neurological or psychological or cognitive diseases uh, along with any significant cardiovascular disease, um, given the potential adverse effects of DEX uh, on the cardiovascular system, um, those patients were excluded. Um, and also, if for whatever reason you weren't um, expected to survive for more than 24 hours, uh, then you know we're not really preventing delirium in someone who might die within the next 24 hours. So they uh, they were excluded. Um, and then what they did was they uh, treated these individuals um, with DEX at a dose of 0.1 micrograms per kilogram, far far lower than the uh, therapeutic dose for uh, about 24 hours. It was sort of when they came out of surgery until eight o'clock the next morning on postoperative day one. Uh, And then the control group was the same individuals, but they were given a placebo infusion of normal saline, DEX DEX being uh, an infusion, and they were given at the same rate, uh, in the same bags, so it all looked the same and and there was no concerns about unblinding there. Um, And then they looked at the incidence of delirium uh, during the first seven days uh, after their surgery. Um, and they had some interesting secondary uh, outcomes that looked at uh, time to extubation, ICU and hospital length of stay, uh, among others. Um, and if you're interested, you can read the article and look further into what some of the other ones are. It seems like it's a pretty strong study. Just one question. How, do, how were they assessing for delirium? What was the method by which they kept that blinded? Excellent point. So in the ICU, there's been a validated screening tool called CAM-ICU which stands for the Confusion Assessment Method for ICU. There was, you know, there's originally a CAM for ward patients, 
um, and there's been a few different iterations of the of the tool. But uh, because a lot of ICU patients are intubated uh, with an endotracheal tube, they're not verbal. Um, and the original iteration of the CAM tool requires individuals to be able to speak, and, and that's how you assess for inattention and, and um, you know, fluctuating mental status. Um, but in the ICU, there's ways to assess patients for uh, inattention and agitation and other, you know, surrogate markers of, uh, of delirium. Um, so that was the tool that they used to assess delirium. Okay, and just, I don't want to belabor the point, but uh, was the, were the nurses doing that or the doctors or, how, or was like a third party coming in and doing it? There must have been someone who didn't, didn't know them maybe. That's actually a very interesting point. Um, so the people who did it were not uh, healthcare workers. Uh, they were not doctors or nurses or other individuals involved in a patient's care. They were actually research team members who were trained in how to do the CAM ICU assessment, um, but, uh, but were not involved with clinical care of patients. Now that has pros and cons from a research design, but I think that's a very important point to bring up. Was there any uh, real strengths that you want to talk about or weaknesses that, that you want to focus on about this article? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I, as most studies that we cover on the podcast here that are published in major, uh, one of the major journals, I mean, you know, it was, a, it was a well-designed study, one of sort of a prototypical double-blinded uh, uh, study. Um, it was adequately powered to answer the question that they had. They had 700 individuals um, who underwent randomization, so 350 in each arm. Um, and that was also, you know, they derived that number by, by estimating how much delirium they would see and what they thought the reduction could be. Um, so, you know, they found that the rates of delirium were consistent with what the general population data is, which is about 23 to 25% of patients in the ICU are becoming delirious. Um, so that just means that they captured the right, uh, patients in my mind. And, you know, their design was intentionally, some of the limitations, um, when patients were entered into the study, they, they didn't actually they were not actually tested if they were delirious at that time. So, you know, the, the authors say, well, there's this sort of like post-operative delirium as patients are coming out of anesthesia and they're kind of all confused. Um, but they say that's not of any clinical significance. I'm not so sure. Plus, you know, uh, does that go away or do they are they actually delirious and just carry on? Um, now, that being said, patients are randomized to each arm. So... Um, you know, they're, they're equally exposed, whether they're delirious or not. Um, I kind of found it interesting that the mean time to onset for delirium was six days uh, in both arms, but the drug is only given on day one. Um, yeah. And so I looked up the half-life of the drug. It's only six minutes. Like dexamethanidine is gone and, you know, in like half an hour, the, to the drug is totally gone from your body. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. A yeah, like I, I don't know a lot about the, you know, neurophysiology other than what receptors it binds to. But I don't know. There's that's, that's something dissonant about that in my brain that's sort of like you get a drug for a day, it's gone in half an hour, but six days down the road, you get the benefits of it. Maybe it has some sort of neuromodulatory properties. I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of interesting to me because, I mean, I'm I'm looking through this maybe from a bit of a different lens because I'm getting these post-operative patients maybe a couple weeks later when they're coming over to me and I'm getting a, a note saying, yeah, they're stable, no delirium. And then as soon as they show up on our floor, they start to go delirious. So, um, you know, it, there's that acute period where they can be delirious, but also what happens down the road. And I'd wonder how it actually affects them long term and whether just having being on that medication, getting the pain benefits, and then withdrawing off it and not having it anymore, 
um, could, could propose a harm. That's a bit uh, may, maybe out of the scope of this study, but uh, delirium and the dementia in that whole picture comes down to like placement after they leave the hospital, all that kind of stuff. So I think it, it's a good study. I just don't know where I would apply it, I guess. Right, right. So I guess your sort of comment is about the generalizability to practice outside of the intensive care unit postoperatively when a lot of other healthcare professionals take over and deal with the prolonged delirium states. Okay, so all that being said, uh, is there some, is there a primary outcome that you think is valuable here? All of those criticisms and questions aside, the numbers really speak for themselves in this study. Um, And I I, I think you can't ignore them no matter how much you want to try to break down the the design of the study. Um, so as I said, 700 patients were included. Um, and those who received DEX, 9% of them developed delirium. Um, and those who received placebo, uh, 23% of those developed delirium. So you had an odds ratio of 0.35 for the development of delirium within seven days postoperatively. So I mean, that's a huge difference. And this is prevention. Yeah, I, when I saw those numbers, I was I was surprised, to be honest. I thought it was going to be a lot closer than that. Um, yeah, I, 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 my, my reaction was the same as like, there's got to be something fishy about this study. I went back and sort of looked at the like, you know, inclusion, exclusion criteria. And I don't know, it's a it's a it's a profound and striking result. The the other the other, you know, interesting outcome, which kind of loops back to your comments about the use of this drug outside of the intensive care unit was a safety um, endpoint. Um, so Typically, DEX is used in much higher doses in the ICU. It's got a lot of sedative properties, uh, anxiolytic aspects to it. But one of the trade-offs is because of its effects uh, on alpha-2 adrenoreceptors. You can remember back to your physiology, but basically you, you can get severe hypotension and bradycardia as a consequence. And it's like I've seen this in the ICU before when we occasionally use it. Um, it, it is a real thing that happens and you got to stop the infusion. Thankfully, it wears off quickly, but it can be significant. But in the dose that they chose, this low dose, the, they did have some hypotension that occurred, which to me suggests that the high enough dose that you're getting some action, that means you know your real primary outcome is believable. But it wasn't such that you had to require any kind of intervention. So there was no differences in any other safety outcomes. Um, and in fact, the individuals who um, were treated with placebo had higher rates of hypertension and tachycardia that needed intervention. Uh, and that might be just due to a very agitated, delirious state, um, or it might be just, you know, the lack of counterbalance by the hypotensive and bradycardic effects of DEX. I guess there's a lot of possibilities for how it works, and there'd be, have to be more work to sort of figure out why you're having that finding. Because it actually seems like there's a benefit beyond just reducing delirium. There's a benefit for avoiding other uh, adverse events, uh, which would just increase the why you'd be using it. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there are several individuals smarter than me out there who know about all of the neurophysiology and systemic physiology of this drug. I just haven't read it enough about it uh, and know much more than I are. So Someone smarter than um, you, Karen? So if you're, yeah, if, if you're out there, give us a holler and, uh, and let us know. We would love to hear about how this drug really works at the molecular level. Um, so who does the study apply to? You know, if you take your table one typical patient... Um, from this study, it's a 74-year-old man with pre-existing hypertension who undergoes abdominal surgery for cancer, some sort of malignant process, who then is intubated and admitted to the ICU. That's your sort of prototypical patient who would benefit in this study. That being said, uh, and applying it to that 
specific population. Is there a main learning point you think can come out of this article? Yeah, I mean, I think, as I already sort of mentioned, like the, the results are striking. And so I think the takeaway for me is that DEX uh, has, this demonstrates some really promising results for the prevention, like the first time ever that I've, you know, I've come across for the prevention of delirium, not just treatment of delirium. Um, in surgical patients over the age of 65, those who are at like some of the highest risk for developing it. So, uh, you know, I think that this is a big deal and we should pay attention to this study. I think that validation studies need to be performed both in a North American population. I don't know if I mentioned this. This is a primarily a Chinese study. Um, so there's only Chinese patients and whether they have some physiological or genetic differences than North American populations that are non-Chinese. Um, this needs to be, you know, confirmed and validated in the other studies. So do you think it'll change your practice at all? Well, it depends on my practice on any given day. When I'm working in the intensive care unit, um, or if I'm doing a perioperative consultation on an elderly individual, um, I, I certainly think that uh, I would recommend, you know, I, I can't see any great downside uh, to having a low-dose DEX infusion so long as the patient that I'm seeing uh, is going to be admitted to the intensive care unit. I, I think it would. I, I really do think it's going to change my practice. Yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting to see if this sort of comes across the board as standard treatment, uh, that we start to just ex expect that to happen. And I bet you it won't really be used routinely until it becomes part of a, like a hospital procedure or a specific operative procedure. And we were talking about dexamethasone this whole time, Kieran. Is that what you meant by dex? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now it's the mouthful of dexamethamidine or prasidex. I think I just said it perfectly. How's that? Oh, that's perfect. I can't say it myself, so thank you. <laughs> okay, uh, let's move on to my favorite part of the show, uh, the good stuff segment, where Fraser's going to tell us about something that caught his eye in the news over the last couple of weeks. Fraser, what is interesting you these days? Uh, well, this is just today, actually. It's a study out of uh, University of Zurich, uh, and they're looking at uh, antibodies and uh, treating... Alzheimer's disease. So this is a drug that's a mouthful too, aducanumab, aducanumab, um, and it's an antibody uh, that seems to reduce uh, the development uh, of beta amyloid plaques in early Alzheimer's disease. And what they've found is in the first year of using this, uh, the plaques are reduced, but also uh, the progression of the symptoms of uh, dementia were actually reduced as well. So this is, I, I haven't read all the, the study criteria, but it's something that I'm going to definitely read. And it's interesting because, you know, we're talking about delirium uh, and the cost of that and the things that lead to it. And obviously dementia is one of them. So I'll be interested to see what comes out of that. So you're describing biologics uh, for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease? Yeah, essentially that's what it is. Yeah. Interesting. Thank you, Fraser. That's uh, uh, very informative. We'll post the uh, link for uh, Fraser's article uh, on the website. Um, my article is titled Tall Tales. It came out of the Atlantic. Actually, this was published in November of 2015. It was in the bathroom at my cottage, um, and I just happened to pick it up and read it, but kind of cool. Uh, so it's all about the evolutionary value of urban legends. Research suggests we may have an incentive not just to believe fearsome legends, but to pass them on. Uh, so sharing information about threats can make you seem more reliable. If people read two descriptions of the same product, one of those which mentioned a threat, 
Um, so like for example, if you press control keys during installation, software may damage your hard disk on your computer. People would rate that as more reliable and that the person who told them that is more competent than the person who was you know, saying sort of the opposite. So kind of interesting uh, the way that uh, sort of our, even our own brain is hardwired to protect us from threats in our life by sort of saying that, thinking that these things are more reliable and more um, memorable. So basically, if you're good about, you're good at lying about things that are wrong, people will trust you more. Food for thought. Well, Fraser, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for calling us all the way from Trenton. Um, yeah, I hope you enjoyed your time on the show here today, and I would really appreciate it if you came back in the future. Thanks a lot, Kieran. I really enjoyed it. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable, follow us on Twitter at roundstable, or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for joining us this week. Who knows what the wonderful world of medicine holds for next week?